Good morning. Is Jesus good? (laughs) Some of you may know this. If you know it, do what comes next. God is good. And all the time. Now the text that we come to this morning highlights the depth of the goodness of God. In John 4, we encounter a Jesus who is even better than we thought, who is even better than his reputation. This is a good Jesus that we're meeting this morning. So we're going to look at a story because stories are powerful. They shape who we are. They shape how we see the world. You can tell a lot about a person by what kind of stories they like. So if you have had class with me, You know that one of my favorite book series is Harry Potter. Potter. That's right. I also love the Chronicles of Narnia. You You can tell a little bit about me by the fact that those are stories that I love. I also think that the stories that we tell from history shape who we are and shape the way that we understand what it means to follow Christ. So as a church history professor, I love stories of heroes of the faith like Hildegard of Bingen or Cory ten Boom or Pandita Ramabai or Neola Sadunaita or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love those stories because it shapes who we are as a Christian community. We each have our own stories too. And those are stories of joy, but they're also stories of brokenness, stories of redemption, and stories of loss. The stories we choose to tell reveal a lot about who we are, and the assumptions we make, and the lenses through which we see the world. And because each of us has a story, we know that everybody else has a story too. So when we encounter a new person who we don't know very much about, we don't know their whole story, our natural inclination is to start trying to fill in the gaps, to come up with the rest of their story behind whatever little bit of information we have. We do this with people we meet. We do this with people we hear about in the news. We do it with fictional characters. And we even do it with the people we encounter in Scripture. The stories we tell about others are powerful, in part because the stories we tell about others reveal a great deal about ourselves, too. So in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, we are told a short story. It's a true story, but it's a story nonetheless. And at its core, this is a story about Jesus offering salvation. But it's also a story that reveals a great deal about who we are and the power of the stories we tell. In this case, the stories we tell about the woman at the well, about Jesus, and about the Samaritans. So let's take a closer look at John 4. I encourage you to get out your Bibles if you haven't already. We're going to be in verses 1 through 42. Don't worry, I'm not reading the whole thing all at once. Starting in verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he, Jesus, left Judah and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near a plot, the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. So the story of the woman at the well begins. Both the story on the page and the story we tell about the woman to fill in the gaps. John's Gospel introduces us to this woman by establishing her identity as a woman and a Samaritan. Two things that not only set her apart from Jesus, but put her at a social disadvantage. Jewish men did not associate with women, unless they were family members, but even then, within the family, women were often only acknowledged at home, not in public. Samaritans were probably mixed ethnicity descendants of Israelites and Assyrians, and the Jews treated them with deep animosity. This is the beginning of the woman's story. She has lived her entire life in a society that diminishes her because of gender and ethnicity. And she demonstrates awareness of her social status when she says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? We fill in the missing pieces of her story by imagining the tone with which she might have addressed Jesus. Maybe she expresses confusion. Why are you talking to me? Maybe she's concerned for his status. Are you sure it's a good idea for you to be talking to me? Maybe she's delighted. I can't believe you're talking to me. Maybe she's frightened that he might try to harm her. You don't want me. I'm a Samaritan. Maybe she's assertive. You know I'm a Samaritan. You don't really want my water. The way we fill in her story shapes her in our minds. And a picture of this woman starts to come together. And it's either a picture that makes her more like us, that leads her to empathize and to hear Jesus' words to her as if they were words to us. Or it's a story that reinforces her differences and vulnerabilities even as Jesus' interaction with her is breaking down those very barriers. We learn more about the woman's story as her conversation with Jesus continues. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now we start to fill in more of her story. We begin to supply some additional background. We apply the lens of our contemporary culture and start to make assumptions about the kind of woman she must be. As I read commentaries and sermons on this passage, I confirmed a trend that I suspected about the way the woman's history is imagined. Preachers call her a hardened sinner, lacking shame or conscience, a moral and spiritual failure, 
She is portrayed as an outcast so dirty and rejected that she has to go to the well alone because no one will even associate with her. She is called dead and hard and blind, a failure in morals and a failure in faith. And as I read those versions of her story, I found myself getting angry about these portrayals and the way they reveal more about the people who tell her story than about the woman herself. That version of her story tells us a great deal about the culture of the interpreters, but very little about her actual story. So what is her story? Let's look, let's look again with a little more sound exegesis as well as compassion for a sister in Christ. Under what circumstances might a Samaritan woman find herself having been married five times and then with a man who is not her husband? The Samaritans followed Jewish law. So the regulations governing marriage would have been the same as the Old Testament and also the first century rabbinic laws. So there are a limited number of ways in which a woman could come to be in her situation. Perhaps one of her husbands handed her a bill of divorce, which is allowed under Jewish law. They simply dismiss her. A woman did not have the right to divorce her husband. Divorce was not something women did, it was something that women had done to them. One might argue, well, maybe she did something to deserve it. Maybe she committed adultery, or maybe she was abru abusive, or maybe she was just really difficult to live with. If that were the case, she would have gained a reputation, and it is highly unlikely that other men would have married her, let alone multiple other men within that same community. The only agency a woman had regarding marriage was that she might petition the rabbinic court to try to get them to try to convince her husband to give her a bill of divorce. And if she wanted to do that, she had to prove that her husband had been so neglectful that her basic needs, like food and shelter, weren't being met. If that was part of her story, then she has experienced unimaginable pain at the hands of one or multiple husbands. It's possible also that she could have been issued a bill of divorce because of infertility. And if that was the case, then the sting of divorce just adds to the already existing sting of infertility because a woman's value in society was based on her reproductive ability. Maybe she's been widowed. In that case, she might be in a cycle of leveret marriage. The practice of leveret marriage is described in Deuteronomy 20, 25. If a man dies before his wife has given birth to a son, then the man's brother is supposed to marry the woman so she can have a son who will carry on the family line. We see how this can play out in Genesis 38. When Tamar's husband Ur died, and she got passed on to his brother Onan, who also died, and she had to go live with her father because the third son, Shelah, was first too young and then just refused to marry her. It's possible that the woman of, at the well has had multiple husbands die, possibly within the same family, and that the sixth son has taken her into his home but refused to marry her. Whatever events have led to this woman having five husbands, they have most likely been painful, traumatic, and not her fault. 
This is not a story about a woman who is hard and dead. This is a story about a woman who is so soft to the gospel that she recognizes the Messiah when she meets him. It's not a story about a woman who is mired in sexual sin. It is a story about a woman who has experienced unknown trauma and loss and presses on day by day. This is the story of a woman whose spiritual thirst is so deep that when Jesus offers her living water, she immediately responds, give me this water. And then the woman's story continues. We learn that this is a woman who knows her theology. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. This is a story of a woman who is not only longing for the Savior, but has studied how to identify him. She is so steeped in messianic expectation that she recognizes the truth in Jesus' words, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus himself explicitly confirms that he is the Messiah. And so the story of the woman at the well is also the story of the first evangelist in John's gospel. Jesus had disciples and followers, but this woman is the first person to go from Jesus to another group of people and share the good news of the Messiah. And not only does she tell her community, but they believe Jesus is Lord because of her testimony. The fact that they believe her indicates that she actually has a reputation for being trustworthy. She is no outcast within her own community. In a culture where women were not even reliable witnesses in court, this woman's testimony is compelling, giving further grounds for rejecting the interpretations that call her an adulteress or a sinner. This woman has a powerful story. It's a story with which, in which many of us can recognize ourselves. Maybe you see your own story in the way she has been misrepresented as sexually immoral. Some of you have sto had stories told about you. You have been blamed and shamed for things that other people have done to you or for impossible circumstances in which you found yourself. People have told stories that assume the worst and willfully ignore the facts. Maybe you see your story in her stories of loss or neglect or abandonment, and maybe you also see yourself in the fact that she manages to seek life despite those circumstances. Maybe you see yourself in her eagerness for the gospel and her boldness to proclaim it. Hers is a powerful story. The woman at the, isn't the only person at the well who has a story. Jesus' side of this interaction gives us a picture of a compassionate Savior who elevates the weak and overlooked and shows love and grace to those who suffer. Jesus and his disciples are heading back to Galilee, and Jesus decides to take the most direct route through Samaria instead of the typical route that intentionally avoided Samaria and its inhabitants. This is a Jesus who rejects and overcomes ethnic barriers that centuries of Jewish culture had constructed around access to God. And his rejection of social hierarchy continues as he speaks to the Samaritan woman. 
Everything about her identities has kept her separated from God. But Jesus is God, and he has no interest in reinforcing human prejudices. So he not only speaks to the woman, he requests a drink. He honors her humanity by giving her the opportunity to share hospitality, which carried great weight in the first century Middle East. Jesus says to her, give me a drink, which to our ear may sound like a rude command, but the woman clearly understands, as, understands it as a request and responds with surprise, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? At this point, we might start to tell a story about Jesus being annoyed or frustrated by this woman. The Jesus in our heads becomes exasperated with the woman for not knowing who he is and immediately requesting living water. If you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for water. But there's no indication in the conversation that follows that Jesus is exasperated with the woman at all. In a time and location where men did not address women in public, Jesus not only talks to her, he addresses her with respect and engages her in serious conversation. The conversation turns theological when the woman asks him, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? She knows the history of her location and its theological significance. Under normal circumstances, her question might be considered insubordinate or inappropriate, a woman addressing, maybe even challenging, a man. But a conversation with God incarnate is not normal circumstances. He answers her question by offering her a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And though his answer isn't as concrete as we may want it to be, there is something about the way Jesus interacts with the woman that makes her want that water. Jesus' words to her are an invitation, an offer of a gift, and she wants it. This is a Jesus who transgresses social barriers in order to offer eternal life and does so in a way that makes the offer irresistible. But then the conversation takes an unexpected turn. Jesus tells the woman to call her husband and come back. What story do we tell about the Jesus who tells her to go call her husband? Is Jesus offering living water only to set her up for embarrassment? Is Jesus trying to catch her in a lie? Maybe the Jesus in this story is kind of a jerk. But that doesn't seem consistent with the Jesus who's just been talking theology with this woman. It doesn't seem consistent with the behavior of Jesus who is constantly interacting with women of all social stations throughout his ministry. And yet in our minds, we tell a story about a Jesus who asks gotcha questions for embarrassment or shame. So let's look at that story again. This woman lives in a culture where her worth and identity are based on marital status and the number of children she has. Having been married multiple times before, she is clearly old enough to have a husband. And her culture, she would feel ashamed to not be married. It would add insult to injury if a total stranger assumed that she didn't have a husband. So when Jesus tells her to go get her husband, 
Maybe it's a kindness. His words indicate to her that he sees her as someone with value. Of course, Jesus, being both human and God, knows that she is not, in fact, married. He could have just said that. He could have said that she doesn't live with the, woman, with the man that she currently lives with. He could have led with an accusation. But he's gentle with her. He gives her the opportunity to choose whether to disclose a bit of her painful past. When Jesus mentions her husband, she has the agency to correct him or not. She could have changed the subject back to living water. She could have protected herself by saying that her husband couldn't come right now. Jesus leaves those options open to her, though he knows the truth. But something about the way Jesus has spoken to her tells her that he is a safe person to tell the truth. When she tells him what he already knows, that she has no husband, she has opened the door for him to demonstrate the depth of his awareness of her suffering. So Jesus walks through the door she has opened. You are right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What story do we tell about the Jesus who says these words? Is it a story about a man reveling of having caught a woman in a half-truth? Is it a story about a man shaming a woman who has probably already been through hell? Is it a story about a man who needs to bring a woman down a few pegs, despite the fact that as a Samaritan and a woman with no husband and probably no children, there's no lower she could go? When you imagine Jesus saying these words, what is the story you tell about the tone and attitude toward this woman? Remember, this is the same Jesus who saved a woman's life by intervening when men wanted to stone her to death. This is the same Jesus who called it a beautiful thing when a woman anointed him with expensive perfume. The same Jesus who forgave the sins of the woman who washed his feet with her tears and sent her away in peace. That is the Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. He is not embarrassing her, shaming her, revealing some hidden secret to make her feel disqualified for the living water he has just offered. He acknowledges that she has told the truth. He doesn't ask her what she did to cause her marital history. He doesn't accuse her of infidelity. He doesn't blame her for not pleasing her husbands. He doesn't call her a moral failure. He doesn't even tell her that he forgives her or to go and sin no more. He shows her that he knows the depth of her pain behind the words, I have no husband. His offer of living water still stands, made all the more meaningful by the acknowledgement of her need for healing. When you imagine Jesus, is he asking trick questions, just waiting to catch you in sin? Do you imagine Jesus digging through your memories, bringing up your past and condemning you? Do you imagine him withholding grace because of your brokenness? If that is the Jesus in your mind, that is not the Jesus who met the woman at the well. 
And that is not the Jesus revealed to us in the Gospels. Jesus offers you living water and eternal life, and he sees your brokenness with compassion and a hand of healing. Jesus does not offer living water in a cup of condemnation. Jesus must have said these words in a tone of gentle compassion and loving kindness based on the way the woman responds. She doesn't shut down or become defensive. She knows she doesn't have to. She hasn't been accused of anything. And so she goes back to the theological conversation they've been having before her marital status came up. They talk about worship for a while, Jesus continuing to engage her in a little theological back and forth. And then Jesus confirms his identity as the Messiah. And so this is a story about Jesus' decision to confirm that he is the Christ. This is a story about a savior who chooses an unmarried Samaritan woman as the first person to whom he directly and explicitly confirms that he is the Messiah. His story is the story of the Savior, who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. There's another storyline in this passage. The Samaritans as a group, the community from which this woman came, what is their story? It is the story of a community that is ready to receive the good news of the gospel. The Samaritans had lived separate from God's chosen people, being told that they had lost their opportunity for redemption generations ago, that they were unworthy to worship God. And yet they hope and prepare. And when the testimony comes, they believe it. When the woman tells them a story that others may have disregarded as fantastical or a ploy to get attention or a false alarm, the Samaritans believe that the woman is telling the truth and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah as a result. A group of them trek out to the well, not because they doubt the woman's testimony, but because they believe that when they get to the well, they will also meet the Messiah. They delight in Jesus' transgression of ethnic boundaries and invite him to stay with them, which he does for a few days. And then they believe their own eyes in addition to, not instead of, the woman's testimony. The story of the Samaritans is a story of hunger and thirst. Perhaps you have felt that hunger when you needed to hear the good no news so much you could taste it. Perhaps you've been so thirsty for Jesus that you were primed to receive his word no matter where it came from. Perhaps you've been longing for salvation but aren't sure whether Jesus' invitation applies to you. The story of the Samaritans shows us the power of testimony, of belief, and of hunger. What stories do you tell about yourself and others? Are they stories of living water and redemption and healing? Or are they stories that divide and blame and condemn? The stories we tell have power, for better or worse. So what is your story? I challenge you to do two things. First, allow Jesus to rewrite your story. 
Allow the love and mercy and compassion of Jesus to reinterpret the parts of your story that have caused you to feel embarrassment or shame. Allow Jesus to rewrite your story into a testimony of eternal life. Then, second, share your story. Tell the truth about yourself and about who Jesus is. Testify so that others have the opportunity to believe on the basis of your testimony. You have a powerful story to share, and there are people who need to hear it. Go now, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you this day and every day. Amen.